Good morning to all. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. We're very happy that so many of you have begun to visit with us. We, get, we, we see new folks each week, and you're welcome here. If you need a Bible, we always give out Bibles. So just raise your hand. We'll be happy to share a Bible with you. It's staggering how many people, including me, didn't go to church where they read from the Bible. So can't tell you how many times I'll have people say, boy, I learned more today than my whole church time. And I'm like, yeah, because we're reading from the Bible. And, and it's been my sense that a number of you in your journey are moving towards Christ. Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me. And all who come to me, I won't cast out. So some of you are in that stage of inquiring and thinking through what, what does it mean to follow Christ and can I know I'm going to heaven and we want to help you in that journey, and we want to see you make that decision. Jesus said, he that hears my words and believes him who sent me shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Some of you are still over here, and even maybe this morning, you'll make that decision to trust Christ. Spirit awakens you, and you receive life. So we're in the middle of studying 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul's trying to, to heal a breach in the church. They're messed up in their beliefs. Now, if you think about it, it's really, really quite a, an interesting sociological study. How does a culture change its beliefs, right? How is it now that I'm hearing people say that in the public schools around here, sometimes up to half the kids are claiming to be bisexual? What, what, what has caused such a rapid gender dysphoria and change of beliefs where people are suddenly wanting to change their genders? What has caused this, 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 this great turnaround of, 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 of what we would say are, are long-seated cultural Judeo-Christian beliefs? Like, where did that come from? Well, I can suggest, number one, it didn't happen overnight. But this process has been going on for years in our culture. Al Muller has a book called We Cannot Keep Silent, in which he traces all the way back to the 60s in the sexual revolution of how a, a clearly written agenda said, if we're going to change American culture to move away from Christian values, then we need to have the media, we need to have the school system, and we need to persuade many clergy members that some of these ethical things that they were saying are wrong are not wrong and have them join us and say, you can come to church and do, do this and do that. And we can see this unfolding. And so what, what I want to share with you this morning is that's exactly what happened in Corinth, that while they had been established in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, apparently there were just a few people who began to share false ideas and pretty soon it spread through the church, and the church was turned upside down. So look with me in verse 12 when Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? I want, I want to start with that phrase, some among you. It just started with some. Just, just, just enough to begin to spread that idea within the church. And over time, whoever these some were began to 
spread their teachings until many of the Christians in the church were like, yeah, yeah, they're right. So this morning, we're going to go from verses 12 down to verse 34. And, and we saw last week that Paul goes, when I first preached the gospel to you, the gospel is the only way you can get saved. So mark this down. If you believe the Bible, the Bible says there is no other way to go to heaven except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, that's too narrow, that's too exclusive. Well, it's extremely exclusive, and it ought to be. If Jesus is God, he has every right to say, it's my way or the highway. If he's not God, then he is a narrow-minded bigot. But when he comes to earth, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. So we saw last week that the gospel is Christ died for all of our sins, paid it all, not part of them, paid it all. The Lamb of God shed his blood for our forgiveness, and then he was raised from the dead. And that if we repent and believe in him, we receive full and free forgiveness. That's the gospel. But Paul says, now some of you are going, I don't believe in the resurrection. So the first thing we're going to look at is Paul's going to, going to use logic. Did any of you take logic in high school? I didn't, so, and not surprised that only a few of you did. No, just kidding. <laughs> I didn't. So sometimes I laugh when people will use, you know, some logic term like, that's an argument absurdum, or, you know, you know. so I read a good one this week. Ready? Paul's going to use modus tollens. And it's like, wow, that sounds really fancy. What does that mean? It's pretty simple. It's if someone makes a statement, if A, then B right? If someone can disprove B, then A must not be true either. So, here's what he says. He goes, I preached the gospel to you that Christ rose from the dead. That's A. Then B, since Christ rose from the dead, we rise from the dead, okay? But then he says, but now some of you are saying people don't rise from the dead. Well, if B ain't true, then A ain't true, meaning if people don't rise from the dead, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. Once he settles out in their mind, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. He goes, now, let's start with some of the logical consequences. Like, Christians will say, who cares what you believe? Let's just, let's just love each other. Well, Paul goes, who cares what you believe? Are you kidding me? Think about this. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, he throws down five consequences. All right, look at these consequences. He says, no, listen. Here's his, his modus tollens, verse 13. If there's no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So, the first consequence is this. Christianity is a lost cause. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, look at verse 14. He says, our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. It's just, it's meaningless. It's a lost cause. It's silly, right? Why? What are we doing? Playing church, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is a lost cause. But wait, there's more. He goes, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're also liars, right? Look at the next verse, verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God, or that could be translated about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Now, in the grand scheme of things, 
I think I'd rather be called a liar than call God a liar, right? In, in the book of 1 John, it says, if anyone says that they are not sinful, then they make God a liar. Now, that's, that's kind of interesting. When you talk to people, they go, you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I'm a good person. Did you know you just call God a liar? What are you talking about? Well, you just said you're a good person, but God says in the Bible, there are no good persons. We're all sinful, right? So Paul goes, look, I told you Christ rose from the dead. Christians have a lost cause and we're liars. Third, he goes, and now it gets worse. Your judgment is looming. See, one of the, 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 the greatest comforts of Christianity is the Bible says Jesus died for our sins, but how do we know that God accepted that? Well, the Bible says because God raised him from the dead, right? If, if, if somebody says there's hostages in there, I'm going to go in there and, and rescue the hostages. And we're waiting outside. If they never come out, <laughs> we go, I don't know if they rescued the hostages. So Jesus says, I'm going to die to pay for your sins. And so you don't have to fear judgment. There's no judgment for you if you come to me because I paid for your sins on the cross. And the proof of that will be God's going to raise me from the dead. So if he never came out of the ground, we'd be going, I don't know, maybe God didn't accept his payment. So think of how Paul argues from this. He goes, peeps, look, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. In other words, your, your judgment is still looming. Judgment. Like most people don't realize that right now, like, like a deer in the scope of, of, a, of a hunter, God's wrath is hanging over them. And the moment they give their last breath, they're swept into hell. The Bible says, he that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is not condemned, but he that does not believe is condemned already, and the wrath of God abides over them. Like you're, you're like pig pen. You've, you've got God's judgment hanging over you. That should scare you, right? God's not trying to, quote, scare the H out of you. He's trying to lure you in love to Christ so that you don't end up in H, right? So, one of the comforting things about being a Christian is, I'm not in my sins anymore. I am forgiven. I had a precious experience with this. I told you this recently. Little old man, 81 years old, dying of cancer. He says to me, Tom, I became a Christian a year ago. I'm so thankful. I'm born again now. Gosh, I would have gone to hell, but so grateful. But then about two weeks later, I saw him. He goes, Tom, am I, is it possible that I could still go to hell? Because I heard someone say that Christians are still having a judgment. Does that mean I have another judgment? I might not go to heaven? And I said, Brother Joe, relax. Romans 8.1 says, if anyone's in Christ, there's no condemnation. You're good. We do have a judgment, but it's only for our rewards, not for our destiny. So Paul goes, if Christ isn't raised, like you should be afraid. You're still going to have to be judged. Your judgment is looming. 
And then he, he rips away another comfort. Many of you here have lost loved ones, right? And yet you believe that that loved one is a Christian. And so you believe that that loved one is with the Lord. And one day we're going to be resurrected and we're going to be together. I mean, that's, that's the heart and soul of our hope. The Bible says Christians don't cry like those who have no hope. We cry like those who have hope. Our hearts break and weep for lost loved ones, but not hopelessly because the Bible says we know the Lord himself is coming and we will be raised up and be together with the Lord. But Paul says, that's off the table. Your judgment is looming and your deceased loved ones are lost. He says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're done. They're gone. You'll never see them again. So you're like, wow, Paul, you're spanking these people. Christianity is a lost cause. We're a bunch of liars. Judgment is looming. Our deceased loved ones are lost. And then he goes, and you know what else? Christians are losers. What do you mean Christians are losers? He goes, think about it. Verse 19, if we only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. <laughs> right? He's like, loser. <laughs> like, you guys are boneheads. Like, what a waste of life if you're all worried about God and Jesus and the life to come. Just do your thing. And Paul goes, we're a pitiful lot of people if we don't believe that there's a future resurrection. So in essence, he goes, so, okay, you Corinthians who are going, there's no resurrection. He goes, you've just undone your past because you're not forgiven. You've undone your present because there's no meaning to life. And you've undone your future because there's no hope. So he says, let's move from that. Since that isn't true, he's going to say, but now, look with me in verse 20, Christ has been raised. Okay, so let's stop this nonsense about, oh, the dead aren't raised. Christ has been raised, and so are we. So, so the point he's going to make here is this. Because Christ has been raised, this assures us that God is doing two things. He's reversing death, and he's restoring his kingdom. I read an illustration this week that I thought, this is kind of interesting. It used a phrase like this, death has robbed our loved ones and hidden them in the bank of the graveyard. It's robbed our loved ones, taken them from us and hidden them in the bank of the graveyard. Like, like, like it just reached out, the death reaper, and just snatched them and it's storing them all in this graveyard. What we're going to learn from this passage is this. God is going to reverse death. He's going to go into the grave and he's going to take back all of his own. And he's not just going to take them out of the ground, a bunch of corpses, and then pile them somewhere else and go, these are my corpses. But he's not only going to pull them out of the ground, he's going to restore them to life with a body and he's going to establish them in his kingdom. Now, this is a deep passage. So let's start in verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits 
of those who are asleep. The Bible uses sleep as an analogy from death. So just note this. When someone dies, their body is separated from their soul. If they're a Christian, the Bible says you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says your soul goes to hell. But your body's in the ground, and the Bible calls that lying asleep, falling asleep. So he says, Christ was the first fruits of those who, who are asleep. It's an Old Testament analogy. When, when the harvest time came, the first fruits were given to God because that was a guarantee that there was more to come. And so in the same way, Paul's saying, look, since Christ as a man was raised from the dead, that's a guarantee that all the rest of those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Now let's see how he develops this because it's really profound. He says, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul was very fond of, of, of doing this. He would have two figures. He would take a cardboard cutout and go, this is Adam. This is Jesus. They share several things in common, and they have some very drastic differences. And so in Romans chapter 5, if you get a chance, read the end of Romans 5. He goes, let's compare the first Adam to the last Adam, right? One of these is not like the other. But he uses a phrase frequently in the Bible, in Adam, in Adam, or in Christ. So I usually illustrate this with, with a pot and, and a plant, okay? Here's the pot, here's the plant, and the soil is Adam. And when you're born, because of our connection to our forefather Adam, what's true of Adam is true of us. So without any contribution of your own, you inherited two things from Adam. You inherited condemnation. The reason we die is because we all sinned in Adam. The Bible says, through one man sin entered the world. So mark this down. It's not news for you, but the reason you're going to die is because you're in Adam. But unless something changes, you're not only going to die, you're going to go to hell because you're in Adam. So can I give you a hint? You don't want to stay in Adam because what's true of Adam is true of you. And if that's not bad enough, not only did I inherit his condemnation, I also inherited his corruption. I'm a sinner. The Bible calls that the flesh. I have a disposition that's not all that likable. And it's evident in all of our lives. The deeds of the flesh are evident, whether it's our, our relational sins, our private sins, our sexual sins, our, our divisiveness, and our, our lack of self-control, our ungodly ways. So, wow, I don't want to be an Adam, okay? So the Bible says, in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all are made alive. So theologians call this union with Christ. But this is not for theologians. This is for every Christian to think about. I am in Christ. Now, this is not new to most of you. You just maybe haven't made the connection. You've, you've probably recited a verse many times and said those two words in Christ. You just didn't really think through what that meant. 
Let's put this to the test. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is blank, he's a new creation. Ready? Therefore, if any man is, he's a new creation. It doesn't say, if any man's a Christian, it says, if any man's in Christ. What does that mean? It means when you believed in the Lord Jesus, God plucked you out of that roots of Adam. You died. He made you a new creation and he planted you in Christ. Now you're connected with Christ. Now you're in the soil of Christ. Christ rose from the dead. You'll rise from the dead. Christ is righteous. You're righteous. Christ is going to reign forever. You're going to reign forever. So it is a blessing to be in Christ. And it's entirely of God's grace. The Bible said it is by his doing that we are in Christ. So that no one could, 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 could boast. We're not like you know those seeds that, that jump, you know? We didn't jump out of Adam one day. I didn't go, you know, I just need a change of environment. I'm getting out of Adam. I'm in Christ. <clears throat> Left to myself, I would have stayed in Adam, died in Adam, and been in hell with all the rest of the people in Adam. But in Christ, by God's doing, even when I was dead in my sins, he reached down and put me in Christ. And so Paul's going to take that and say, so here's the benefit. He goes, since all die in Adam, in Christ all are made alive. But instead of just stopping and saying, you know what? God's reversing death. He goes, he's restoring his kingdom. You go, wait, hang on, what? So Paul says in verse 23, this whole resurrection, each in his own order. So God's not up there going, oh, I don't know, pick somebody. He's like, no, no, I got this all planned out. The first resurrection will be Jesus, okay? The next one, oh, no, no, look at this logical order. He goes, next, after that, those who are Christ that is coming. So right now, all over the world, there are people in the ground. And when Jesus comes from heaven with a shout, they're going to bust out of the ground. God's going to rob all these banks, right? Now, this doesn't say every human. It says everyone that is Christ's, right? He's coming for his own. Now, the rest will come out, but they're going to hell. So, the first res so, so here's the Corinthians going, there's no resurrection. And Paul's going, are you crazy? If there's no resurrection, think of all the consequences. But in fact, there is a resurrection. So number one, since you are in Christ... Christ rose from the ground. When he comes back, you're coming out of the ground. But wait, there's more. If you call right now, he says, listen to this. He goes, then comes the end. And you're like, well, that's anticlimactic. What do you mean by the end? And by the way, there's a, there's a huge looming question here. What does he mean, then comes the end, right? Because when I read that, I read that when Christ comes back, that's the end. And now there's a new heaven and a new earth. But not everyone reads it that way. Many people read it this way. Well, Christ rises the dead, and then there's this long period of time, and then after a long period of time, then comes the end. And well, well, maybe, but I'm not so sure about that. So look what he says. Then comes the end. Okay, what's going to happen at the end? When was the last time you thought about this? It says, here's what he's going to do. He's going to deliver up the kingdom 
to the God and Father when he has established all rule and authority and power. So Jesus comes back. He raises us from the dead. And then we go, Jesus, we want to worship you. He goes, if you'll pardon me for a moment, I just have to drop something off. I just have to make a delivery real quick. What are you delivering? Okay, I'm going to deliver the kingdom to God. Is anybody going, wait, what? Deliver the kingdom to God? What kingdom? We'll think on that, okay? And, and it's going to happen when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. You see, right now on this earth, there's, there's three things that really bother God. Sin, Satan, and death. They're all his enemies. They're all opposing him. And until they're removed, God is not reigning in the way that he plans to reign. So when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to take sin, Satan, and death and say, that's it, you're done. And when that's all done, Paul goes, keep coming with me, there's more. You say, okay, so what's he doing right now? Now, you know this, what's he doing right now? When God raised him from the dead, what did he do? He took Jesus up to heaven and he said, sit at my right hand until I do what? Until I bring all your enemies under your feet, sin, Satan, and death. So right now, Christ is reigning in heaven. But when he comes back, he will subdue and defeat and destroy all of God's enemies and establish the kingdom. And then he's going to give it over to God. So, the, so, so the, go back in history to the Old Testament. Jesus is up in heaven with the Father, but the Bible says he humbles himself. He comes down to earth, and he submits himself to God, and he becomes obedient to death on the cross. And because of that, God then highly exalts Christ. So right now, the Bible says Christ is given the name above all name. He's Lord of all. Christ in, is entrusted with the unfolding of God's kingdom right now on earth. So, so this was sort of a, a, a change in, in, in roles, right? When he comes out of the ground, he says, all authority is given to me now in heaven and on earth. So right now, Christ is ruling and reigning as Lord of heaven and earth. But apparently, when he comes back and brings this earth into subjection... Look what happens. It says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, a quote from Psalm 8, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So, simple thing, he's saying this. When God said, I'm going to put everything under your feet, Jesus, Paul goes, except God, he's not going to be under the feet of Jesus. Well, then what's going to happen? He says, but when he says all things are put in subjection, he's accepted. Now, here's, here's the verse. This one, like, my mind was spinning this week. When all things are subjected to him, then Jesus, the Son himself, will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. 
You, 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 you follow on that? So God the Father makes this plan before the foundation of the world, the unfolding covenants and plan of redemption, which included Christ coming to earth and subjecting himself to God, and then God highly exalted him in this age so that he would reign and come back and put all things under his feet. But then when he does that, the son will voluntarily then be subjected again under the father. And you're going, well, what are the implications of that? And here, here's the crowning implication. Verse 28, that God may be all in all. Like I'm drowning in, in, the, in the mystery of that. That God may be all in all. What does that mean? That God may be all in all. I thought God always is all in all. Well, he is, but as long as there are opposing forces in this world, he has not ultimately accomplished his plan of redemption. The Bible says from him, through him, and to him are all things. It's all about God. But somehow when God comes back and removes all of his enemies in a new and glorious way, God will be all in all. That the restoration of shalom, the recreation or the, or the redemption and restoration of creation will bring us to a place of beauty and glory in which God will have his rightful place and he will be the center of the universe. And I'm wondering here when he says God may be all in all, that, that because one of the things that struck me is why doesn't he mention the spirit here? What's the spirit going? Don't I get a turn? You guys take turns? I think maybe he means the, the, the triune God will be all in all. Now, I would wish that that was true now, that it's all about God. But if you asked me, hey, Tom, is that how you live? Every moment of your life, is it all about God? I'd go... Since my wife is here, I'd have to say, no, that's not. I want it to be, and it's going to be, but what, a, what an interesting way. Some people have said, oh, Paul got, got off on a tangent here. He's like, this is not a tangent. This is part of the, the resurrection. The resurrection is simply a demonstration to us that from the beginning, God has this glorious plan of redemption, which includes raising from the dead all of his own, restoring creation to its perfect and permanent paradise and he will be dwelling with us on this earth and God will be all in all. And if you can't get excited about that, then, then you're preoccupied with the wrong stuff. Like we ought to be able to go, wow, I could worship God now because it's so exciting to think about what's coming. But you're going, yeah, but pastor, you don't get it. Like right now, I'm trying to pay the bills and I'm depressed. and I, I get it. It isn't easy now, but that's his whole point. And so he's going to wind back around, and we're, we're almost there. So he says, so by the way, he goes, speaking of, you know, bummers if Christ isn't raised, he thinks of another one. He says in verse 29, by the way, if Christ isn't raised, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? That has been called one of the hardest verses in the Bible. There are probably 15 interpretations of that. This is where the Mormons get the idea that you can baptize 
get baptized for your loved ones and get them into heaven. They have some of the, the most precise genealogical records in the universe. And if I believed that, I'd be rushing to, to Salt Lake right now and going, dunk me, dunk me, dunk me for my uncle and my aunt, my grandsister and all my relatives. I can assure you this, it does not mean that you can get people into heaven by getting baptized instead of them, okay? So I can tell you what it doesn't mean, but don't ask me what it does mean. <laughs> I don't know. Why were they baptized for the dead? There's a lot of views, and we can talk about I have some possible views, but it had nothing to do with salvation. But by the way, while we're on the subject, if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. And we have a class coming up. Okay? So, all that, he says, think about it. If the dead aren't raised, why am I in danger every hour? Brothers, I died daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, what in the world is that? It sounds to me like Paul was thrown in the hippodrome to fight a lion and the Holy Ghost did a Daniel and delivered him. We don't know what he's talking about here. Is it a metaphor? These nasty people tried to kill me. But his point is this. He goes, you know what? As a Christian, I have suffered and sacrificed. And whoever tells you that being a Christian is fun and easy and happy all the time and you're going to be healthy and wealthy, that's nonsense. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. In fact, I read a great quote this week. This lady wrote this quote. She goes, one thing I learned from 1 Peter, it's better to suffer than to sin. And so he goes, if I went through all this sacrifice and suffering and the dead are not raised, what profit is that for me? In fact, he says, let's just eat, drink it, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. You're like, Paul, these were, these were fascinating. Thank you for sharing these wonderful logic. You used modus tollens. You persuaded us, and you taught us all of the the, the illogical fallacies and all the things that are true. And now Paul just, he just reaches out and goes, and I go, did he just say that? This is Paul talking, not me. This is how he closes that argument. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. Some of you have no knowledge of God, and, I, and you should be ashamed of this. <laughs> Did he just say that? He just gave them a beat down, but it was out of love. He wasn't mad at them. I tried to paraphrase this. Stop denying the resurrection. Holding this false belief is sinful, and you should be ashamed of yourself. So you know what you need to do? You need to choose some better company and get busy trying to win souls. Does that sound like K-Love? Positive, encouraging, K-Love. Like, sometimes we need one right between the eyes. Now, I would not want that all the time, right? Jesus was so tender at times, the Bible says, a bruised reed he wouldn't break, a tender flax he wouldn't, he wouldn't quench. But sometimes we need the two by four. 
James chapter 4 says, you should be ashamed, be miserable, and mourn, and weep, and humble yourself before God. So Paul's just very direct here, and this is part of Christian preaching. And please understand, I'm not just preaching to you, and plus, you're not the Corinthians. We all need to hear this. Bad company corrupts good morals. So if the people that you're hanging around with are changing your beliefs and dragging down your behavior, stop it. Yeah, well, you know, these are my boys from work, or these are my old friends from childhood, and, you know, we always get together and have a few drinks, and yeah, it gets out of hand. Well, then stop it if you're a Christian. And if you're starting to come up with some weird ideas that it's okay to do this, and it's okay to do that, we don't understand, you know, stop it. He goes, some have no knowledge of God. You got a circle of people around you, loved ones, friends, neighbors, if you're in high school, young people. There's a circle of people around you. Through your life, is there any, anything they're learning about God? Is there any desire on your part to pray for them, to share your faith with them? Do your children see that, that Christ is real to you? Do the people that know you know what you believe? Or have you bought this lie? I just witnessed by my life. How do you witness by your life? Yeah, be nice. But use your lips also. And say, I believe Jesus is Lord. And if someone asks you, do you think this is wrong? Well, I just believe what God says. And we come alongside hurting people and we say, you know what? There's hope in the gospel. There's hope in Jesus. And we invite them to come to Jesus. So I don't even have to come up with a relevant application. Paul just did. He said, stop denying the resurrection. Stop holding false beliefs. Choose better company. And get busy trying to win souls. But not because, oh, but because he lives. Amen? Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we live in a, in a world that's out of control. We live at a time when people are coming up with the craziest thoughts. As someone once said, common sense doesn't even seem common anymore. But thank you for grounding us in the Bible. Thank you for giving us the gospel. Thank you that Jesus did die for all of our sins and he did rise. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid of death because you promised that we will rise. And we don't need to lose our minds out of sorrow over loved ones because we're going to see them again. And we look forward to the day when Christ comes back and he restores all things. And he gives the kingdom over to you and we reign forever with Christ in unceasing joy and hope. But in between that time, Lord, help us to wake up and smell the coffee and live lives of gratitude to Christ, lives of holiness, treating one another with love, being led by the Spirit and speaking 
love into one another's lives. Help us to grow and pray and serve, for our labors are not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen.